morning we continue our work through the gospel of john we've been plugging away bit by bit and asking the question primarily what does this reveal about jesus who is this jesus that the gospel attempts to point us to and we are in chapter 13 this morning where we will be reading the entire chapter the words will be on the screen behind me uh, but you may also uh, look it up in your pew bibles on page 1069 Again, chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I sent receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. 
So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this mortal of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's imagine that you're at work or you're out interacting with a friend of yours, and they just ask you the simple question. How do I know if someone is a Christian? a follower of Christ, what would you say? What would you point to, to explain, like, this is how you can identify them? Maybe you would point to the faith, the, the things that you have to believe or accept that you would talk about uh, your understanding and appreciation of who Jesus was and what he had done to you. And by having these things in your head, then you are a Christian. Or maybe you would point to what the Christian receives. That it's not about what you do, but it's about what has been done for you. That if you are one who has received the cleansing of your sin, you are a Christian. A Christian is one who has the promise of eternal life. Maybe you would talk about practices about religious things that you do. A Christian is someone who shows up to church or attends Bible studies, sings in choirs, or, or gives certain amounts of money. And, and by doing these things, you can recognize that they are a Christian. Maybe you'd highlight the things that Christians are opposed to in our culture. You can identify a Christian by the fact that they stand against these trends and, and these things, that they are clear that they do not believe in moving forward in this way. And so they, they vote for politicians that will fight against those ideas. Or maybe it's their practices. 
A Christian can be identified because they swear less than most everybody else. They don't get as drunk as often, or they try to be a better person. And so you can identify them through those efforts. Again, without those suggestions, what would you say to someone that just asked that question, how do I know if you or somebody else is a Christian? Well, now that we're making our way into John chapter 13, we are in what is universally recognized an important part of transition in the book of John. Uh, two weeks ago, when I preached on John chapter 12, I highlighted that that was the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. And now, in, verse, in chapters 13 through 17, the focus is going to be on Jesus in this upper room setting with his disciples, preparing them for what is about to happen at the cross. And incidentally, uh, that's going to be our goal, to get through these chapters that will lead us right up to the season of Advent. But in chapter 13, it starts in verse 1 with something rather interesting and profound. It sets the tone for that entire section. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now some important things to point out in that verse. and First and foremost is the fact that Jesus knew that his hour had come, and that very soon he would be departing from the earth back to the Father. Throughout these chapters, it's abundantly clear that Jesus is fully aware of what is about to happen. That the cross will not surprise Jesus or take him off guard. But notice some really incredible things with that. That Jesus is in control of things. Even in our chapter right away, you can tell that there's a difference between the actions and, and the description and the attitude of Jesus and his disciples. The disciples are confused, they're scattered, they don't understand what's going on, and especially in contrast to that, we see Jesus who is prepared and is trying to prepare them in a peaceful and calm and clear way. Again, Jesus knows where he headed and he is going there willingly. And that's because another thing that we're going to notice is that the cross is not a low point. It's not the, the tragedy of the book of John. Instead, it's actually the climax. As it says in verse 31 of our text, it is at the cross where Jesus is glorified and God is going to be glorified through him. And so Jesus doesn't avoid where he is headed but knowing where he is headed, he seeks to prepare himself and his disciples. But again, that kind of leads to an interesting question. If Jesus knows that his time is short, how does he react? Or let me reverse that. If you knew that you had literally hours left to live in your life, days, what would you do with those hours and days? How would you spend that time? Well, Jesus does know. And how does he spend that time and those hours? Well, our first answer to that question is Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Now, I would guess that it's very likely that most of you are familiar enough with this story to have a concept of just how lowly a task washing someone else's feet was. But 
I don't think that we truly grasp how significant of an act that was in this culture at this time. First of all, there's the task itself. Even today, I would guess that if, as an illustration, I said, I'm going to take some water and, and pick one of you to wash your feet, almost all of you would, would say, like, no, not me. I don't want anybody else to see my feet, to smell my feet, and certainly not to touch my feet. And that's us that wear shoes and socks. And back then in their culture, these people, sandals were the standard apparel of the day. Walking on unpaved, dusty and dirty roads, feet were and are gross. Which is why washing feet was a regular part of their hygiene habits. But that was a task that was reserved for the lowest of slaves. Again, I don't know if we can fully grasp this, but for example, if you were a Jewish person at this time and your servant was also Jewish, they wouldn't be allowed to wash your feet because that was too low of a task for a a fellow countryman to perform on you. You had to have a Gentile slave perform that task. So there's the task itself, but now think about who is doing that task. Again, let's put this in the context of where we just were. In chapter 12, we read about the triumphal entry of Jesus, where coming into Jerusalem, he was celebrated as a king coming to his hometown victorious. And the whole point of that sermon on John chapter 12 was to highlight that having concluded his public ministry, it was abundantly clear, Jesus is God, that is the truth that we must accept. And so you put those two things together, the lowliness of this terrible task and the greatness of the person who was performing it. And again, I don't think we could fully grasp the shock that the original audience would have had when they read what Jesus does and stripping him his clothes and putting on a towel and serving his disciples. But that's what Jesus does with the little bit of time he has left on this earth. And he does that for a couple of reasons. First of all, when we see Peter objecting to this idea because it's such a lowly task, Jesus says that he has to go forward with it. That unless Peter is cleansed by Jesus, that he will have no part with him. And so this is not just about washing feet, but it is symbolic, as John often has, of the washing by Jesus in general. The washing of the disciples' feet is in many ways a representation of the washing of all people that Jesus is about to engage in through his sacrifice on the cross. And one must be washed by Jesus in order to have fellowship with him. But in addition to that symbolism... Jesus makes it abundantly clear in verse 15 that he is also doing this as an example for them to follow. Again, given who Jesus was, he had no right to be engaging in this lowly task. And in his status, he should have celebrated that as the culture would have and let somebody else do this task. But Jesus didn't strive after status. He was not proud. And and pride is a killer of relationships. 
Instead, Jesus sets the example that although he is their Lord and their teacher, he was willing to do the lowliest of tasks as an act of service. And in his willingness, he clearly calls them and that to follow his example and to imitate his humble attitude of serving others. It's a whole different view of who this Jesus is. That not only is he God, not only is he the great miracle worker, the incredible teacher, the, the, the Messiah himself, the celebrated one of the triumphal entry, but he is one who had come to serve his disciples and others. But in that moment of humble service, we find out that there's another difficult piece of information that Jesus is also fully aware of. And, and while hints are dropped in the text in verses 2 and then 10 and 11 and then later in verse 18, by the time we get to verse 21, he comes right out and says it, that among his disciples, one of them will betray him. Now again, uh, the faithful disciples obviously would have been shocked by that information that one of them would be a betrayer of Jesus and they, they worry about who it is. And again, I don't think we can fully grasp the, the cultural implications of what that means. When talking about the one that would deny him, Jesus quotes in verse 18 from Psalm 41. And Psalm 41 is about a, a psalm where David talks about being betrayed by a friend. Many of us, almost all of us, I'm sure, have had the experience where someone has, has conflicted with us, that has harmed us or hurt us in some ways. And maybe there are others of you who know the hurt that is deeper when it's a friend or a loved one, someone you trusted that is the source of that hurt. But again, in this culture, the idea of sharing a meal together was a level of deep intimacy and friendship that was expressed. And, and for you to share a meal and then to go forth and betray or, or harm the person with which you had had a meal again, it is a deep, deep hurt. But that's what Judas was about to do. Thinking about this betrayal, oftentimes we all wonder, why would Judas do it? What motivated him? Why would he betray Jesus? And we speculate about that all of the time. Obviously, as referred to earlier in John, there was some greed involved in this. As the money keeper who had been pocketing some of that money himself, Judas was looking for ways to line his pocket and money was his God. And so maybe that was part of the motivation. And looking at this particular scene and you say, well, what triggered Judas? Others speculate that, well, maybe Judas really liked the idea of the triumphal entry of Jesus. This, this king who was going to come and upset the political system of the day. And now to see Jesus put on a towel, that, that discord is Jesus continuing to refuse to be the king that he was supposed to be. And, and maybe Judas was so upset that he was trying to force Jesus to, to take on those political systems. But again, that's all speculation. And in many ways, John isn't worried about that, obviously, because he doesn't address it. But instead of, of asking what was motivating Judas, he, he highlights and explains why Judas did what he did. And John sees this as a spiritual battle. In verse 2, 
It opens the scene saying that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon's son, to betray him. And then in verse 27, says that after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Now, while we want to avoid the idea that the devil made him or the devil made me do it, where that's an explanation that, that Judas or us are not culpable when we sin, we are. But the reality is that there are certain things that when we toy with that are evil and wicked, and when we mess around and play with sin, that there is often a point where we can be given over to that sin. The devil is alive and well, and he is looking for whom he may devour, and we need to be on our guard against that. All the way back in chapter 1, John introduced his gospel, and the ministry of Jesus is a battle between darkness and light. And then in John chapter 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. And that describes Judas to a T. He loved the darkness more than he loved the light. Now, in looking at this whole chapter, one commentary described this scene as a scene of cleansing. Is a time to, to cleanse the disciples in preparation for what's about to take place. It starts with the cleansing through the washing of the disciples' feet and then a cleansing of the group by the expulsion of the traitor. But as soon as you recognize that, you also have to recognize the oddness of the order in which those things happen. Because almost everyone would recognize or say, well, well shouldn't have happened in the opposite way. Shouldn't Jesus have identified and gotten rid of Judas and then washed all of the disciples' feet? But he didn't do it that way. Which means Judas was one of the disciples whose feet were washed. And that raises a a bit of an issue, especially knowing that Jesus knew what he was wrestling in his heart. And, And it's amazing to think about that fact that a whole sermon has been, whole sermons have been and could be taught focusing on that very fact itself but just think about it judas received this great act of jesus's love and service his feet were physically washed but he never truly received that gift and for some that should be seen as a warning We can be physically present and we can know what Jesus did and even receive some of the benefits of it. But just being here, just being around and and receiving the blessings of the acts of God's love is not enough. You have to receive that gift in your heart and in your life. So be warned if, if you're just here and you think, well, that's enough. But also be encouraged. Jesus' love and devotion is so great that even knowing that Judas was going to betray him, he still served Judas, giving him every opportunity to repent and turn to him. Jesus, in his love, was a servant even to those that would hate and abuse him, and he doesn't give up on people easily 
or quickly. Well, after Judas then leaves, for reasons that most of the other disciples don't understand, Jesus is ready to give a command to his disciples. And having washed their feet, Jesus says in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. A couple of questions right away come to our mind when we hear that command. First of all, he says that this is a new command. And yet, it doesn't seem all that new. Earlier, we know that Jesus has said that the summary of all of the commandments of the Old Testament was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So how is this new? And in many ways, this isn't a new commandment. But in instituting this new covenant, what Jesus is saying in a deeper and fuller way, love that we show toward one another is what will define the members of this new covenant. And so the follow-up question is that if Jesus commands you to love, is that something that you can really command? That if you don't feel an affection for somebody else, that Jesus says, I don't care what you feel, do it. Can you command love? Which leads to the broader question I think we really must wrestle with in our culture, which is, well, what does it mean to love somebody? And I say that because I think our culture gets it wrong in a whole lot of ways. On the one hand, oftentimes we limit love to those feelings of affection. That it's centered in our heart and and when we are drawn emotionally and especially uh, romantically toward somebody else, that that that's what love is. And of course, in those things, that's hard to command an affection for somebody else. But that's a limiting of what love is. On the other hand, you also have in our culture that a true expression of love is to just let people be. To not confront them in anything or to not try to change them or alter them. To just let them become the person that they want to be as best as they define that. And even if if that means that they're going to walk themselves into all kinds of trouble, to truly love them is to step back and say, I'm not going to judge you. I'm just going to celebrate where you're going and where you're headed. And neither of those things is what Jesus is talking about at all. And so his command was not just to to love, but to love just as I have loved you. And so how does Jesus love his disciples? It's not about his affection. It's not about him just letting them become who they want to become. Instead, Jesus shows his love in sacrifice and service. His love was shown through his action of stripping his clothes down, putting on that towel, and doing that lowly task of washing his feet. Which again, is just pointing to him in that greater act of service, where he will allow himself to be arrested, abused, mocked, and beaten until he is killed on a cross. And why would he do that? He does that because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to sacrifice his very life through that painful torture on the cross because that was the only way that your sins could be cleansed and where you could have a relationship with the Father once again. That is love. And that is what we are commanded to show to one another. Those that have received the blessings and the benefits of knowing Jesus and receiving the acts of his love demonstrated toward them were now called to go and to show that love to one another so that all who saw them in their actions of love would know that they were his disciples. And as one commentary asks, well, well, how do you know if you're a servant? This is the answer is if you're treated like one. Which means that you're just assumed that you're going to be the one to do those lowly tasks that nobody else wants to do. And when you do them, that you're not going to get praised or celebrated for them. You're going to get overlooked and dismissed. Because that's who a servant is. And that's what a servant does. But that's what Jesus meant in commanding people to love others. But again, never commanding us to do what he himself was not willing to do first. Which brings us all the way back to the introductory question. Someone were to ask you, how do I know if someone is a Christian? What would you say? And in our text, it really highlights two things that are important. On the one hand, to be a Christian is to receive the gifts of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Again, when Peter tried to refuse the cleansing, Jesus said that he would have no part in him. You must be cleansed. This isn't about what you do, but it is about what has been done for you by Jesus and to receive that gift is to admit that you're a sinner. To ask for his cleansing blood to clean you. Instead of being like Judas who was washed but never truly cleansed. Today as in other Sundays, some of you have been here and you saw. You've sung. You've heard. But in truth, you've never really given yourself over to the grace of Christ. And for you, the encouragement is to let Jesus cleanse you. To receive the grace that he's offering to you. And let his love change who you are. So yes, we need to receive, but it, I would also guess that the majority of us have received that gift. And in receiving, the call is to now go and love one another. Of all of the things that people say about the church or see in us as the church universal or this particular church, the thing that should be seen and said is that we are a people who love and serve others. And again, not in the cultural way of feeling affections for everyone or, or through ignoring things, but instead showing love through sacrificial acts for one another. So are those the stories that are told of the people of this church and of the church? I certainly know that they are out there and there are many that could be told. But I also know we can do better. I know that we can sacrifice our pride and love one another just as Christ commanded you. Again, two quotes from our text. First from verse 37. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
And then also in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. May we be identified as followers of Christ because of the sacrificial love that is truly and clearly seen in our relationships. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, uh, many of us this morning sit as Peter, saying that we truly do not deserve you, the King of the universe, to come to this earth and to bear the penalty on the cross for our sins. Lord, we are the one who had earned that penalty, and you are far too glorious. But you did it. Through your love for us, you have cleansed us by your blood And that has been proven by your victorious rising from the grave. Lord, thank you for that gift. And as we truly not only appreciate that gift, but receive your cleansing, our prayer is that it would change us. And having received that incredible act of your love, that we would go forth and show that same self-giving, sacrificial love to one another and to a world that needs to receive it. I pray, Lord, that we who claim to be your disciples, would be known as those who love one another. And in loving one another, that would be the foundation of what people are attracted to. And they, they too might understand the gift of grace you have given to them as well. So may we not only receive the great benefits of your love, but may we go and show that love to others. All this we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.